Uh, one of the beautiful things that's happened this week with a, a rainy, lots of rainy times is the fog over the mountains. There's another lovely foggy morning today. And from our kitchen window, uh, we look out towards Mother Mountain and that whole range of hills. And I love foggy mornings uh, where the horizon keeps changing. Uh, sometimes you can see nothing at all, and that was when I woke up for breakfast this morning. It wasn't because it was dark, but just so foggy. And then as the uh, air warms and the fog lifts, you can start seeing the peak of the hills or their faint outlines. depends on exactly how the weather's working out. And when it warms up properly, you can see them clearly again. Now, the hills are always there. They're not going anywhere. Sometimes you can see the details more clearly than at other times, but when we look out our kitchen window, whether it's foggy or clear, the hills are always there. What's in your view when you read the Bible? When you open the Bible, what are you looking to see? What's always there whenever you open the Bible? Today we're just going to look at a few sentences from the middle of the first chapter of 1 Peter. I asked Cliff to read a bit more so we get the context, but we're going to slow right down today and just looking at three verses because these verses help us to understand how to approach the Bible and how to think about the Bible. But the reason I got, as I said, we've got Cliff to read a bit more context is we are looking at only a few verses, but we need to not forget the big picture. In 1 Peter 5.12, we're told the purpose of this letter. Why did Peter pick up pen and paper, or maybe his mate Silas did, or more likely it wasn't pen and paper, it would have been quill and parchment? Well, he actually tells us at the end of the letter. He says in 1 Peter 5.12, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So why has Peter written? He wants to encourage Christians, encourage them, those people scattered around Turkey, or encourage us to stick with Jesus, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Uh, We've called this series Hope Away From Home, and we saw last week Peter calls Christians elect exiles, chosen travellers. We're away from our true, heavenly, eternal home. And as we heard in chapter 1, verse 6, because we're away from home, we go through all kinds of trials, various suffering. Peter's writing to encourage Christians to stay the course on the journey home, to stand fast in Christ despite all kinds of trials. And that's why he writes these couple of sentences about the Bible to encourage us to stick with the true hope that's been revealed. So if you've got your Bible there, turn back to chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, This section is linked to what we heard last week. Have a look at the start of verse 10 concerning this salvation. Now, what is this salvation? Well, it's all the things we praise God for in verses 3 through 9. God's salvation is that in Jesus, believers have a new life and a living hope. God's salvation is an eternal, incorruptible inheritance. In Christ, we're not locals because our home is in heaven. God's salvation is protected by God himself. That's what verse 5 says. If we trusted Jesus in our own strength, we'd let go. But God guards what is his. 
And finally, this salvation is more precious than gold. That's why God protects it. If you've got something precious, you want top-notch security. You don't put the cheap padlock on, you get the good locks. Well, you can't get better than the Almighty. And it's more precious than gold because salvation is eternal. Now, why does Peter tell us about salvation, about God's heavenly, eternal home? Because he wants believers to stand fast in Christ. And now, verse 10, Peter's going to tell us more concerning this salvation. He tells us we are in a privileged position. Even though Christians suffer all kinds of things, we're privileged because we've received what the prophets of old and the angels of heaven would love to see. The prophets of old and the angels of heaven. And first up, the prophets of old. Now, what we call the Old Testament, uh, most, maybe all of it, could be characterised as prophecy. Uh, The first five books of the Bible are sometimes called books of the law or the books of Moses. But guess what? Moses was a prophet. Uh, The books we call history, books like Joshua, Samuel and Kings. If you don't know what I'm talking about, have a look at the contents page you bring in the Bible. That's what I'm talking about. Joshua, Samuel's Kings. Jewish people call these books not history, but the former prophets. Because they're not history as we generally think of it. It's God's history. It's not just a record of what happened. It's God's assessment and God's message about what he was doing through those things. Even the book of Psalms, if you look at how the book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament, they're not just nice songs that make you feel good, they're treated prophetically. They're not just a nice song that David wrote. It is God speaking through David. And that's what prophecy is. It's God speaking through someone. All of the Old Testament is prophecy. And the message of the Old Testament, what God is saying through these prophets, is all about Christ. So have a listen from verse 10. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Uh, There's two strange words in that section, uh, Messiah and Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. They both mean the same thing. In 1 John, sorry, in John 1, 41, it says, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. They both mean the same thing. Messiah and Christ both mean God's promised chosen king. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Mary wasn't Mrs. Christ. It means God's chosen king. It's just that one word is the Hebrew word and the other one is the Greek word. In verse 11, both Messiah and Christ translate the same word in the original. And I know the NIV has its reasons, but I wish they'd just pick either Messiah or Christ and stick with it because I think that would just make it a little bit easier for us to read verse 11. But that's just a little bit of stuff we've got to get out of the way. What's this saying? What's this saying that the prophets were doing? Well... They were given a message, a prophecy from God. It came to them by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes that message was a vision. 
Uh, Sometimes it was a message. It was words to say. Sometimes it came through a voice in a not-so-burning bush. Sometimes the prophets may not have really known that they were prophesying. I reckon whoever wrote Joshua or Kings, they may not have realised they were prophesying. Uh, In 2 Peter, it's got this lovely turn of phrase. It says, prophets were human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit. Whatever way the Spirit of Christ was working through them, afterwards they'd sit down and they'd dig into God's word. They'd intently search the message they'd just received and they'd study with great care what other prophets had said. And why did they do this? Well, they wanted to see what God was saying about the coming Christ. They wanted to understand everything they could about this promised king, a promised king who would suffer and then the glories that would come through the suffering. And you can see this uh, in the Old Testament. Sometimes later prophets quote earlier ones because they've been searching diligently to discover more about the coming Christ. Now, this might sound a bit surprising, mightn't it? Here we have prophets who they know that God has promised to send us a Christ who would suffer and then be glorified because when Jesus started his ministry, the religious leaders couldn't believe he was the Christ precisely because he suffered and died a humiliating death. And it wasn't just the religious leaders. The disciples couldn't believe Jesus would suffer and then be glorified. Uh, When Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. See, Jesus wasn't saying anything new. If they'd studied the prophets, they would have known that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. That's what the prophets were saying all along. Jesus wasn't saying anything new. But the disciples, how did they respond? The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Now Jesus wasn't saying anything the prophets of old hadn't already understood. A whole lot of them already knew what Jesus was going to say, that the Son of Man, the Christ, God's promised King, he would come, would suffer, and only through suffering would there be glories. What does this mean for us? One of the things it means is we should expect to meet Jesus in the Old Testament. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Yes, in the Old Testament, it's like a foggy morning. Christ is present in types, predictions, shadows. But the point is, he is there. The prophets of old, they dug into the scriptures and they knew what God was going to do. Jesus could tell the disciples he would suffer and then rise and say, look, you guys should know this because it's already been written down. It's already in the prophets. The suffering and the glories, though not all the details, they didn't know the year it was going to happen. They didn't know his mother would be named Mary. The prophets didn't know all the details, like a foggy morning, but The hills were still there. The substance was there. Though for us, 
For us who live on this side of the coming of Jesus, what was foggy for them, the same Spirit has revealed clearly to us. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Some people think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New are two very different things. They think the God we meet in the Old Testament is angry, vengeful, legalistic, but then we can meet Jesus and it's all grace, mercy and forgiveness. What we've just read knocks that out of the park. The Spirit of Christ who spoke through the prophets is the same Spirit who empowers people to preach the gospel of Jesus. In fact, I think that's why in verse 11, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Uh, The Holy Spirit is often just called the Spirit or the Spirit of God in the Bible. I think only twice in the Bible is he called the Spirit of Christ. Why does he call him the Spirit of Christ here? It's to emphasize the continuity. There is one Spirit bringing one message, the suffering and glories of the Christ. One Spirit, one message. The only difference is what they searched and inquired to work out, we have had clearly and plainly proclaimed. Jesus is the Christ. And he suffered, he died for our sin, and he's glorified. He's glorified in his resurrection and ascension, and he's glorified in his people. As the Holy Spirit is poured out on all people all around the world, so they repent and believe the good news of Jesus. Now remember the purpose of this letter. That's to encourage believers to stand fast in God's truth. Well, Peter's point here is to tell us to stand fast in God's grace. Stick with Jesus because we have what the prophets searched for. You think the prophets had it good, you know. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have seen the visions of Ezekiel, to have heard God from the burning bush? No, Peter says those guys had a poor imitation of what we have now through the gospel by the Spirit. They want to be in our shoes because we get to see the glories of Jesus. But it's not just that we're privileged compared to the prophets. We're also in a privileged position compared to the angels. Verse 12 ends, even angels long to look into these things. The Bible doesn't have loads to say about angels. As we've just seen, the point of the Old Testament, the point of the whole Bible, is to reveal that Jesus is the suffering and glorified Christ. Angels and demons, powers and authorities, they show up every now and then in the Bible, but they're on the fringe. They're not the main game. Why is this? Wouldn't you love to know all about that sort of stuff? Well, this verse gives us a hint. It's because angels don't benefit from the work of Christ. God the Son didn't become an angel. He was born of Mary. God the Son didn't take on an angelic nature. He took on our humanity. In Jesus, God became fully human to save humans. And so if the Bible is mainly about the suffering of the Christ and the glories that follow, 
If the Bible's mainly about God's plan of salvation, then it's not going to be mainly about angels because it's about Jesus. Angels and demons are mentioned, but they're on the fringe. But then the question is, if angels are not the main point of the Bible, if they're not the main point of our faith, then why does Peter mention them here? It's a bit out of left field, isn't it? I wouldn't have written this sentence if I was writing this letter to encourage a bunch of Christians. Well, the point is, angels know less than what Christians know about Jesus. They would love to know what it means to be foreknown by the Father. They would love to experience being sanctified by the Spirit. They would love to participate in Jesus' sprinkled blood, but they can't. At best, they can look through the window. At best, they can have a a squeeze at our experience. Uh, This is what I think Charles Wesley is getting at in And Can It Be? In that song he writes, In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound or or measure the depths of love divine. Uh, Seraph is one of the Hebrew words for angels. In the Old Testament we read about cherubim and seraphim. They seem to be different types of angels. And the point Wesley is making, angels aren't able to fully grasp God's love. They've never been saved. So they don't know the fullness of God's love. I reckon that's a beautiful way of capturing what the end of verse 12 is on about. Even angels long to look into these things. You might think, hey, it'd be pretty amazing to be an angel, whatever that actually means, to experience the presence of God on some completely different level. But Peter says, you've got it better than angels. We've got it better than the prophets. We've got it better than angels. If you're trusting in Jesus and have received his salvation, you are in a privileged position, which is an encouragement to stand firm even in trials. So if this is what the Bible is, if the Old Testament reveals Jesus, it's all about the sufferings and glories of the Christ, If the New Testament reveals Jesus, showing us the same truth, but even more clearly, if the prophets of old studied the scriptures they had, uh, they, they had, and they did it diligently, if the angels longed to look into these things, how much more should we be doing the same thing? If we aren't regularly hearing God's word and searching it diligently, how on earth are we going to stand fast? How are you going to grow in your confidence in and love for Jesus? This is why the Bible is central to everything we do as church. Uh, Here, what do we do? Most of the time, we preach through books of the Bible, section by section. And we do the same kind of things in our Bible study groups. Why? Because we want to listen to God in the same way he speaks. And so this year, we started with the first half of Mark's Gospel. We're going to come back to that in spring. Uh, In autumn, we studied Micah together, and now we're doing 1 Peter. As you can tell, we we aim to listen to different parts of the Bible throughout the year. Some Old Testament, some New Testament, a gospel, a letter. Also, we give ourselves to hearing God's voice as we gather. That's why we have at least two Bible readings. 
one that's for the sermon and the other one that isn't. And generally, generally we try, if the sermons are from the New Testament, the other reading is from the Old. So at the moment, as we preach through 1 Peter, we're reading through the Psalms. We started again this week, Psalm 120. And that way, each Sunday, we hear from both the Old and New Testaments. Why do we do this? Why is this important to us? Because like the prophets, with the Spirit's help, We've come to seek the truth of Jesus in the Bible. And we've been given more than the prophets. The truth we can see and experience is more than the angels, so we should be more devoted to searching and inquiring into the scriptures. I've already explained how we do that at church. What about personally? Well, be engaged with God's word here. Bring your Bible, have it open. If it helps, uh, take notes in the outline in the bulletin. Do let me know if it does or doesn't help. I find it helps me. I'm a note taker, not because I go back and read my notes again. Generally, they go straight into the bin, but the actual act of writing helps me to stay focused. Uh, Join a Bible study group. Uh, They're going to be kicking off again uh, the week after next, or maybe even next week. Okay, They'll be kicking off soon. Don't you worry. But it doesn't have to be a church program. Why don't you meet with a friend and read the Bible with them? In your family, read the Bible. Uh, For the last year and a bit, uh, we, our family, we've been using the book Long Story Short. Uh, We found it really helpful. It goes through a whole lot of the Old Testament and does a great job showing how all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. So read the Bible in Bible study groups, read it in your families, read it by yourself Don't just read about the Bible. Uh, I listen to lots of podcasts that are about the Bible. Some devotional material has a nice story and then maybe half a sentence from the Bible. No, those things are nice, but read the Bible. And when I say read, I mean read in the broader sense of the word. Uh, It doesn't have to be words on a page. Audio Bibles, we have a wealth of resources, don't we? Audio Bibles are great. Uh, the Version app, which is free, has some good qualities of, good, good, sorry, good quality recordings of the Bible and they are free as well. I've just recently come across a project called Streetlights. It's also a free app. You can listen to it on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, it's got great quality recordings of the Bible being read with kind of electronic hip-hop beats in the background. May, may not be your thing, but I think it's astounding. Um, I know some people get hung up and they think, well, unless I read the whole Bible every year, I'm not really committed. No, that's rubbish. Mix it up. Sometimes you might want to try to read the whole Bible in a year or two or three or five, whatever. but other times... Just choose one book of the Bible and read it slowly or again and again over, say, six months or a year. Uh, Maybe one of the ways to help you keep engaging with God's words is use a different translation every time you read through that book of the Bible. Last idea, and this I know it's been a bit of a scattergun application, but I just wanted to encourage us to be growing in knowing God and the only way we do that is through listening to his word I know sometimes reading the Old Testament can be an uphill battle. It feels strange and distant. There are names that we've never heard of before. So this is a, a simple tip that works for me. What is what it is, is I've got three questions. Whenever, whenever I'm reading from the Old Testament, actually, you know what? You could use it with the New Testament as well. 
what I do is I read the passage and then I grab out a bit of paper and I write down these three questions. And here they are. Uh, What does the passage say about God? Uh, What does it reveal about Jesus? What does it say about people? So three questions, God, Jesus, people. You could add more, but three is simple. I can remember them. And I find that these questions focus my reading. It helps me see the forest for the trees And it's good for my soul because the questions about God and Jesus lead me to praise. The question about people generally reminds me of my own sin and leads me to confession. Because as people on this side of Jesus, the fog has lifted. And by the Spirit, we can see what the prophets and the angels desperately want to see. And why do we do this? Why is getting stuck into the Bible worth doing? Because, brothers and sisters, we go through all sorts of trials. But we have a great salvation in Jesus. We're in a privileged position compared to the prophets of old and the angels of heaven. And God has given us this word so his people can stand fast. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that what the prophets of old searched to see you have revealed to us. We praise you because in Christ we experience what angels long to see, your love for sinners, the joy of receiving your gracious inheritance and new birth into a living hope. Please help us to be a people who search the scriptures. Please strengthen us and keep us in your truth through what we do as a church, in our homes and by ourselves. Help us spur each other on and encourage each other to take hold of what what you've given us in your word to keep us standing fast in Christ. Amen.